Welcome to the APL Next Ed Minipod, where for a few minutes each week, academic leaders share insights and perspectives on the most important issues and opportunities facing academic teams. Learn how other schools are managing and strategizing for success as your host, CEO and founder of APL Next Ed, Kathleen Gibson, gathers and connects practical seeds of knowledge and experience from her guests. Well, hello and welcome to the next episode of the APL Next Ed mini podcast. Today, we are joined by a great colleague and friend and a real leader in the field of teaching and learning development for faculty, someone who's been doing this for a long time and highly regarded and respected in this field. Please welcome Morgan Johnson. Morgan is Vice President of Faculty Affairs at the University of Arizona Global Campus. In her role, she leads the university's faculty development and support team academic operations team, and the Teaching and Learning Innovation Lab. As a passionate educator, Morgan has taught over 60 online courses in her career. Her research and consulting have focused on faculty management, teaching and learning, and academic operations. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Kathy. Really excited to be here. Yeah. Well, we've been doing um, a series over the last few weeks looking at sort of innovations in teaching and learning programs and looking at how perhaps the last couple of years and the experiences that we've had may have reshaped or helped us reprioritize or even bring new sorts of sets of ideas and curriculum that become part of the teaching and learning programs. And so we've had a chance to talk with some folks who do this from a very mission-centric place, a woman who runs a teaching and learning center at Marquette University and who really uh, uses Ignatian theology to drive, help drive uh, pedagogy and andragogy. We've spoken with some folks who uh, diverse, the diversity initiatives and agenda are really driving their teaching and learning programming and priorities. Um, but as someone who really um, leads in this field, who uh, speaks all over the country at conferences about this, I'm curious to hear sort of what you're seeing as priorities um, across the country at different institutions, and then specifically uh, what you all have sort of put at the top of the list at University of Arizona Global Campus. Yeah, well, what a great theme, I think, for the, your podcast, and uh, what a great, I think, lineup of speakers you've been able to talk to so far. Uh, it's interesting because really this conversation, I would say, is not new in the realm of teaching and learning, right? Over the last several years, we've been talking about how do equity and access play a critical part in uh, everything that we're doing in terms of uh, the development we do with our faculty, the development of our curriculum, uh, and truly the delivery directly to students and the experience they have in the classroom. I think how we've seen things shift over the last couple of years is we really were focused on this topic from a high level perspective, right? All the pieces that you've just mentioned, you know, do our missions align as an institution? Uh, and then what does that alignment look like for institutional learning and course outcomes? And then how does that effectively translate into our uh, classrooms and curriculum? That being said, I think where we've seen the shift happen is going from this high level kind of conceptual framework to now putting things into action. So day one, how are we training our faculty to ensure that delivery of curriculum and their interactions with students uh, truly are providing an uh, inclusive environment uh, within their classrooms and um, for the institutions that they serve? So from, I, I could speak on personal experience as an institution, we've really tried to tackle this 
from two sides, one being, you know, the development of our curriculum and how we differ, you know, I think from other institutions is we do have a centralized curriculum model. So that allows us to have, I think, a little bit more quality control in terms of the actual process that we Mm -hmm. go through to develop Mm -hmm. curriculum. Mm-hmm. but also influence, I think, our um, subject matter experts and curriculum developers in a way that ensures consistency in the practices and approaches that we're taking uh, when we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion in the curriculum development process. Um, so both from a process, I think, in a policy perspective, we've looked at how could we best inform those practices that our instructional designers, our um, faculty, subject matter experts, and really anyone that touches a course during the development process is leveraging um, from, you know, kickoff of a curriculum uh, development uh, project all the way into until delivery directly to students. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, it's, it's very impressive that you have been so strategic in your uh, identification and so process-minded, right? I think I think one of the challenges even around diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in terms of hiring and retention and those sorts of things, I think some of the frustration has been over the years that there's a lot of committee work and a lot of talk and a, pol- a lot of policies, but you know, not a lot of action. And um, it's impressive to hear how not only have you identified this as a priority at the institution, but how specifically in the area of, of delivery of content, teaching and learning, even the way courses are designed, that this is informing all of those processes. And I think you know, it's a lot of effort to um, you know, take, take policy and ideas and then implement, implement them into true sorts of tasks and measurable goals and process. So you know, congratulations on the efforts you've made. As you go across the country and speak, is it your sense that um, many schools share this sort of, maybe it's not uh, a DEI set of um, initiatives, but do they sort of do mission or do prior institutional priorities inform uh, their teaching and learning? Or is, is that something that you think is quite rare? Or how often do you encounter this sort of strategy? No, absolutely. I mean, we've had a, I think, an opportunity um, with our CEDL team, our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning uh, staff and um, leadership to connect with lots of CEDLs across, you know, the United States, serving a variety of different types of higher education institutions. And that's often where the conversation starts, right? Where the core, I think, um, values of most CEDLs are to represent the institution's mission and values within the work that they're doing. So that's why I say, I don't think this is a new endeavor for most CEDLs that are working with, you know, institutions to ensure that it's both the practical and then, you know, direct application that they're seeing uh, within the classroom. That being said, I think it's been accelerated. Absolutely. And moving that, as you just mentioned, from committee work and policy to actual process and implementation it's been great to see that accelerate over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. And I would imagine even schools that might not have the same sort of, certainly there are many schools that don't have centralized curriculum and who, you know, maybe have a different sort of faculty culture where these sorts of directives have to be either raised out of the faculty or raised as a part of 
faculty governance. And I think, you know, that's another set of, I'm reluctant to call them hurdles, but another sort of set of gaps to overcome or to get through before you can really start getting to the, to the action that's going to really um, drive the, drive the change and drive the outcome. So, you know, again, I think it's, uh, shouldn't be underestimated how challenging it is. And, you know, and, and most schools are very bureaucratic to sort of take those ideals and actually move them into action. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's impressive. Yeah, no, that uh, I think, but you just hit on a very important point is that a lot of it has to come directly from the faculty or end users of some of the processes we're discussing. And so just institutionally, what we were successful in implementing, I think quickly was uh, what we consider our diversity, equity, and inclusion rubric. And it's a rubric that our faculty and curriculum developers can use at the beginning of the development cycle to evaluate the course as it currently sits and make recommendations for updates prior to development starting. Yeah. And, but I will say, I don't think that undertaking would have been as successful First of all, if there weren't many voices across all of our colleges and programs represented in the work uh, to bring it from kind of ideation through execution. Mm -hmm. Uh, But additionally, it came from our faculty governance body as a starting point. They saw the need to implement something across the faculty body and a desire to be effective in the DEI landscape within our own institution. And so, um, you know, in partnership, I think with several academic uh, administrators and departments, they were able to successfully implement that. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a very robust collaboration among lots and lots of stakeholders. So, you know, less a top down and more of a collaborative effort, each sort of doing their part, which is, again, I think... (laughs) you know, it's, um, it's to be commended because that's, that's not always easy to accomplish. But I think to your point, um, certainly if you have a faculty Senate and you have leadership and staff and administrators sort of all bought into this as part of the mission, you know, then, then it does make sense that everyone can come together and, and really try to deliver on the outcomes and the goals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that partnership and collaboration is key. Yeah, for sure. So um, is your sense that, again, that you've seen any, I know that your your suggestion is that this is something teaching and learning centers have been doing for a long time is really sort of building out of the mission of the institution. Is it your sense that the last couple of years, either missions have changed or else um, there's been a, a new set of priorities established that, that maybe come organically out of the mission, but might have, you know, new skills or new, uh, new sorts of uh, point of practice or even best practices associated with them. Yeah, I do. Um, the other, I think, piece of this discussion that has been challenging historically is often efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion haven't necessarily lived like within the same scope as the academic enterprise at Mm -hmm. universities. And so because of that separation, I don't think there was as truly, um, as we're seeing start to evolve now, the integration between 
you know, DEI efforts and what that means within the classroom and between faculty and students, right? I think for campuses, a lot of that focus was with, you know, employee to employee or institution uh, to employee and kind of overall engagement um, versus living within the classroom where I think we could all make the argument that's where the most important work is happening on campuses. So I think that's where we've started to see more integration between institutional missions around DEI specifically, and then the work that's taking place to ensure that's influencing and impacting uh, teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. And so um, I do think to your point, you know, institutions are reflecting on what their mission and values are, and then having a better understanding of, is this something that we post on our website? You know, is this part of our strategic plan? But really, how does this infiltrate the day-to-day work of everyone on our campus? And that's where we're seeing a little bit more, I think, alignment and connection so that there is, again, more that kind of practical and application happening, uh, you know, within teaching and learning centers or work that um, institutions are going to develop their faculty in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, when you hear about DEI and when you've heard about it over, you know, the last decade or so and initiatives and priorities around it. It's been much more about bringing more diverse faculty to the institution, retaining those faculty, supporting faculty, making sure that there's equity and inclusion among the faculty. But this is another, as you say, sort of key component to that initiative. And that is, you know, what does the interaction look like between the students and the faculty, staff and administrators, even for that matter? Um, and, And how does that inform the way in which faculty and, and staff and administrators are sort of show up professionally at the institution. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Do you see other sorts of priorities as you, as you do your work across the country or even at your own institution? I mean, you guys have done online for a long time and have a lot of technology expertise. And so I imagine that you were well-prepared and, and have many resources and that may be different for other institutions that haven't done a lot of that. What other sorts of things, maybe maybe including technology or besides technology, do you see as high priorities on a national level around teaching and learning support? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, I've talked a little bit about the curriculum itself, but the other piece of this that we've been really focused on that I've heard from several institutions, they're looking at how to effectively manage this in the online space is that in direct engagement between faculty and students. And I think as we've all experienced throughout the pandemic and, you know, beyond with, um, you know, so much politically charged you know, spaces that we experience as higher ed institutions uh, over the last 18 months, you know, that the direct interaction between students and their peers and then faculty in many instances also became escalated. And so right. it, re- it was important for us to provide a foundation for our faculty to truly be able to facilitate civil discourse within their mm-hmm. classrooms as they were all tackling challenging topics. So I do think maybe it's a little bit of the back to basics in in many regards. And how do you have difficult conversations with students, especially students that in an online capacity are um, representative of many different cultures, you know, political backgrounds. Um, And so that facilitation aspect was key for us as we started to dive into how do we 
effectively develop our, our faculty and provide them resources, I think was the other pieces. We heard from a lot of our faculty that they were feeling kind of on an island, which was already the case, right, as it was with the pandemic. But, you know, they were dealing with challenging situations they maybe had never um, had to deal with within their classrooms prior to that. Yeah, I mean, I've had colleagues um, that I used to teach with who were very seasoned, amazing, kind of award-winning teaching faculty who really just threw their hands up, I think particularly with cancel culture and some of these things, they were really at a loss of, I don't know how to show up anymore. I'm afraid I'm, I, my intention is not to offend. My intention is not to, but how do I, you know, after 50 years of teaching, how do I show up? And this isn't necessarily a reflection on whether or not these sorts of things are good or bad, but it's the reality for a lot of faculty that it's a politically charged environment. It's a a different kind of student. It's a different kind of world we're living in. How do we, how do we prepare faculty to deliver content, teach, mentor, coach, inspire students with a mind's eye that we want to make sure that we're engaging around best practices as it relates to, as you say, civil discourse, which, you know, most students, if they're looking to the culture for an example of that, you know, or faculty for that matter, you know, may not, you know, there may not be the best examples out there. So if, it'd be great to hear sort of some of the specifics, like particularly around that issue, what kinds of things are you sharing with faculty that are tools in their toolbox that they can sort of pull out when, when things don't, you know, aren't going as expected or when they're feeling a little lost or afraid? Yeah, that's, um, I, I feel very proud, I think, of some of the work we've done in that particular area. First, I think we try to establish a community within our faculty to ensure that they had a space to discuss some of the challenges they were experiencing and hear from other faculty members how they were working through that. So we um, established really kind of community discussions where those types of topics were, you know, how do you facilitate a discussion around maybe a topic that right now is more challenging to facilitate. And, you know, it was great to see that I think the just maybe relief a little bit that faculty had in coming together with one another and having those conversations. And from that, we were able to really source best practices that they were sharing And I think one of the best practices that, you know, we've tried to uh, transition to our, or focus on, I should say, within a lot of our teaching and learning development is that reflective question, right, in discussions that faculty are engaging in with their students, of course, always providing their own expertise, but um, also taking you know, a step back and really letting students lead conversations in, in online discussions a bit more than they maybe historically have. We also developed, I would just say to your comment about a toolbox, a community of resources that were both developed within our own CEDL, but also we provided the opportunity for faculty to submit uh, resources on their own that they had found externally that they were leveraging And I think, you know, one of the greatest things is 
we all are going through this in higher ed at the same time. Lots of institutions have started to choose to make resources open. So Mm -hmm. we were able to also look at, you know, some of the best practices and expertise coming out of other institutions and how they were managing some of these conversations and the framework in which they were leveraging with their own uh, faculty and staff um, from a teaching and learning perspective and provide that and apply those to our own development. Priorities so almost like open source sorts of mm-hmm. um, resources. That's mm-hmm. great that there's this sort of sharing and mm-hmm. and um, collaborating even among mm-hmm. schools that might be competing with each other um, mm-hmm. for, for the interest of the students. The next question kind of brings me to the student and I'm curious. I mean, one of the things that I often thought about when I first got into teaching, um, it struck me that it seemed teaching and learning seems so transactional when I first started teaching compared to, and and maybe I'm just reflecting on an ideal that was my own, you know, maybe I, I, maybe I wasn't as curious and as good a student as I I thought I was in terms of just kind of showing up and ready to do my part of learning. What have you um, been able to offer faculty as a way of sort of coaching their students into what their responsibility is in the classroom as it relates to the mission of the institution, as it relates to best practices for respectful civil discourse, as it relates to just being in a learning community and how your institution expects them to behave or this faculty, you know, the particular faculty expects uh, the group to behave. Uh, Have you, have you found some best practices around that? Is this a topic that comes up? Is this a resource you provide? Yeah, absolutely. It is a topic that comes up. I will say, I think we were maybe better prepared in this area being fully online from the start of the pandemic. So we already had established, you know, what do those student expectations look like? Um, And clearly from day one of a student's first course, provide information to them on, you know, what does it look like to interact with your um, peers and your instructors and um, essentially show them what those modeled examples of, you know, not, we, we don't reference it directly to students as civil discourse, but, you know, respectful interaction where we want you to challenge, you know, your peers and your faculty members. That's the whole purpose of these types of conversations and discussions. That being said, there is a respectful way to do that. And, you know, here's our student uh, really rights and responsibilities is how we reference it um, culturally within our institution. And so because that framework was there, I do think that um, our faculty were comfortable and have been comfortable in referencing that and also pulling that into their own guidance directly to students as they establish expectations for their classrooms. Is it your sense, are these included in the syllabus or do you have this in, like, Mm -hmm. is this language that faculty can add to their syllabus or do you include it in a kind of a a shared syllabus? Yeah, it's part of our, uh, what I would consider kind of standard centralized information in all of our core shells. So as part of every course, we have a, you know, student um, policy section uh, that includes, you know, information taken directly from for example, our university catalog, but also just best practices in managing, you know, their, their interactions within their own classrooms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, have you had feedback from faculty or, you know, as you've been a part of these four I on where these communities can get together, is it your sense that, uh, that the students are respectful of these? Um, are they, are they, 
embracing, I guess they're, they're sort of part of the deal or they're part of the bargain, which is to, you know, show up engaged and, and, but also um, show up in a way that is respectful. Um, is this, is this a, a big issue or? Uh, I would not, I would say not for us. I mean, that being said, there was so much, I think that happened during the pandemic, as we've also seen the shift in DEI focus that, you know, it's kind of hard to in some ways separate, um, maybe what some of the manifestation inside our classrooms were about students just, you know, having a challenging time with life, you know, versus where maybe some of these more challenging conversations, you know, were coming to fruition uh, between our faculty and students. That being said, I think one of the areas we've really focused on in our faculty development and support um, over the last two years is really being an empathetic uh, educator. And so because of that, I do think that faculty also were more likely to even take a step back, right? When they were dealing with a challenging situation to try to reflect on what is the student going through and potentially what resources do I have to provide them? This might be happening in my discussion, but it's probably not really related to my discussion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and great perspective to have in any context in the world we're living mm-hmm. today, but certainly in a classroom where if you want learning, there has to be a sense of safety and community mm-hmm. and, and respect. I want to switch gears a little bit and um, ask if there's also interest, again, you, as you come across other teaching and learning centers or directors or folks who are similarly writing and thinking about uh, work in this field, the brain science, I mean, it seems to me as I look at the neurobiology, the neuropsychology, the sort of understanding of cognitive function, cognitive process. I mean, I always laugh because I think so often the science bears out like what people saw through observation, you know, and I think that could be true in, in how we learn and best practices for teaching. Uh, But is there, is there a focus or is there interest, do you think among folks like you who are researching and writing and speaking about this around that and how we, how we help uh, faculty understand sort of the, the process of learning from a, from a brain perspective, right? I mean, we have scans now and we know much, much more, you know, first off, I guess the question is, do you see interest in this? And is there a conversation about this? And then secondly, what sorts of things are we learning that maybe are having an impact and might revolutionize a classroom? Yeah. I mean, Yes, absolutely. Any, I think, conference you go to now, there is someone talking about the relationship between teaching and learning and neuroscience. And, um, you know, the fascinating thing is we've started to see this not just from a like learning outcome and curriculum perspective, but also now um, we're, we're seeing a lot more technology companies focus in on this particular topic from a, a I think, user design perspective and understanding how can we best develop um, experience and features that tap into this concept of most effectively, um, I think, most effectively delivering teaching and learning in a way that taps into kind of what those um, ultimate outcomes we are looking for for students are. 
most recently, I have to say, I saw a presentation from uh, D2L that focused mm-hmm. on this concept. So I do think it's going to be more pervasive uh, within the teaching and learning community over the next couple of years. Again, not just from a curricular development perspective, but also from a technology development perspective. So are you talking about things like awards and, and um, sort of understanding the dopamine and, and the serotonin effect of, you know, being successful or being heard or um, are those the kinds of things that you're hearing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely one area I think that folks are focused in on. And to your point, right, that gamification aspect um, is not new by any means. No. But from a teaching and learning and in particular curriculum development perspective, especially for institutions that do have uh, more centralized models like our model, there is that opportunity to look at how this then um is aligned across programs, um, across curriculum or uh, particular, I think, disciplines even. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think we're starting to see more interest. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that you can point to besides sort of gamification and, and technology moving this direction? You know, I don't know, maybe it's something that was surprising about what the neuroscientists have found about learning. You know, maybe again, it helps inform an understanding of what the student's responsibility is in the process, right? I mean, I think when I studied pedagogy and andragogy a hundred years ago, <laughs> you know, we, we, it was sort of about imparting something that somebody memorized and regurgitated back. And, you know, then we learned, no, that's really not learning what, you know, learning is really about bringing it in and processing it and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, applying it and, and thinking about it in lots of different contexts in a repetitive way. And, and so we, you know, we were doing things a little bit differently, but I'm curious, has anything sort of come out that you were like, wow, this is, this is interesting, or this isn't what I thought, or. Well, it's fascinating because I think one, one of the ways we're rethinking kind of our experience right now is directly within our discussion boards. Um, And truly, I think for many institutions from an online perspective, a discussion experience now is not that different than it was 20 years ago. And so I think there's been a a lot of focus from a technology perspective at how do we really get at more meaningful discussions directly between faculty and students through media, let's say, or kind of add-ons to that discussion experience. We've just recently started working with a vendor who's looking at, you know, how do we rethink discussion board experiences from day one, really, Mm -hmm. of a course, so that it's a continuous conversation and discussion. It's student-led, right? The faculty member is there to provide expertise, uh, to probe students, to help kind of guide conversations that maybe get off track. But how do we also integrate AI into that experience? So students have really at their time of need, some more direct support for challenging topics that, that they're thinking about and they're trying to articulate in these conversations. And we've done a pilot with a couple of vendors. And I think one of the um, aha moments as you were asking is the rigor of discussions that are student led through some of the new technologies that are coming out, it's just so impressive to see. And and truly at the end of the day, faculty taking a step back and spending less time really in areas where maybe historically they have spent time in discussions before, so. Oh, interesting. So Mm -hmm. really allowing this forum to exist as 
part of what the community can learn from each other, yet less directed by the faculty. Yep, absolutely. I mean, when I was, again, 100 years ago doing online, the discussion board was very much sort of about checking a box, right? Oh, we got to have some sort of, you know, so it was less about, you know, how do you judge the robustness and you have to have a minimum number of posts. So it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to hear that, A, there's there's a student interest in, you know, having these sorts of dialogues beyond, Mm -hmm. oh, this is the minimum number of posts I need to make or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And that they're really driving the, the conversation. And, and, you know, I would imagine the AI and the, and the cognitive uh, research are probably driving how you make a discussion more robust, which is, Mm -hmm. which is cool too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think this is an area we can see lots of uh, teaching and learning professionals being focused on over the next few years. One last question that I want to dive into, and, and that is something you and I have talked about before, and that is this focus on ROI of educate related to education and skills attainment and job. And how important is it? Again, we both understand that faculty have probably the most significant impact on a student's success and satisfaction in their learning. Mm-hmm. How is it that you're helping faculty connect for students uh, and maybe uh, as a part of your teaching and learning programs, maybe um, just in a, um, maybe it's less of a priority, but it's a, you know, you have resources to share. How are you helping faculty help students make connections between what they're doing in the classroom and how they might apply what they're doing in the classroom to, to paid work at some point? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's been a critical focus, I think, for us as an institution over the last several years. So a couple different ways, I think in the most practical way, we have implemented um, learning communities. And this is, I would say, we're just at the start of uh, this process, but in several of our disciplines, the faculty really wanted to ensure that students had direct connection to practitioners and information in their field of study, no matter what course they were in or really at what time in their student journey with us. So students as of day one of being enrolled with the institution are also enrolled uh, with their peers in these learning communities. And many of our faculty have started to integrate aspects of those learning communities directly into their classrooms to introduce students um, to the community itself. And then also to make that, I think, professional connection. Um, And some of our faculty have started, you know, um, lists, I think, of professionals in particular areas that students can reach out to at any time. Some of them have um, developed assignments where students are interviewing those professionals as part of an assignment Mm -hmm. to kind of bridge the gap and make that first connection with them and to ensure they better understand, you know, if this is the field they want to go into, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the key competencies they must have in that field? And, and so what's, what's an important focus as they're going through their program? You know, I think like many institutions, we've also instituted uh, e-portfolios so that students are uh, making the connection between their schoolwork and uh, critical, um, you know, career competencies. But also many of our students, if not most, are already working full time. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things um, that we really highly encourage them to do is to share with their employers their e-portfolios that showcases, you know, maybe some of the more challenging assignments they're doing in their their work um, or some of the key, I think, uh, program milestones that they hit. 
so that really has been, I think, uh, another initiative that we've implemented over the last several years. And then um, I think from a learning outcomes perspective, we've also aligned all of our institutional uh, learning outcomes with uh, the NACE competencies. Um, and so that is an exercise that we were able to take really our uh, faculty through to better understand why is it important for you, you know, as educators and then for your students to be able to make those particular um, uh, relationships and alignments so they have a better understanding of, you know, the practical application of what they're learning in your classroom. Right. So they, they can go out and speak to a, an employer in a language that the employer, prospective employer understands, right? I mean, absolutely. Speaking not just perhaps in student learning outcome language, but in, you know, market language for skills and, and aptitudes that are required by a particular job or a particular profession. So it sounds like you have lots of resources for faculty who, who are interested in being this resource and this guide and this coach um, in helping students understand how to make those connections. And then also, you know, maybe even to begin to think about, uh, although if you have a lot of adult learners, I'm sure they're already thinking, but sometimes in the case of non-traditional learners, especially, I think, you know, there's a a sense that there's going to be, um, you know, that the work, work life is a long, long time off. And so, um, I think, you know, making sure that you're, you're talking about, um, how, why, what they're learning is valuable and how it can be applied is, you know, especially important in those contexts. Mm -hmm. So as we get ready to close here, Morgan, what would you say to teaching and learning directors across the country right now, in terms of, you know, if they're, if they're uh, beginning to think about setting a new course or a new strategy or setting new priorities or goals, where would you sort of suggest that they begin? How might they uh, be successful in, in managing a process of putting those together and then executing on them in a way that is uh, going to be valuable to their faculty and their students and, and to the administrations that support them? Yeah, well, I think You've uh, mentioned previously, right, the integration of mission and values into those key priorities are critical and they can't be standalone either. I think one thing, you know, we've always tried to do is, um, for example, with DEI efforts, that's not an effort in, a, in and of itself by itself. It's integrated into every single priority that we have as a CEDL. So I think showing that relationship is, is critical. Also understanding the priorities of the other academic units within the institution and then the institution holistically and making sure there's alignment there. Um, because I think that's how, right, we as, uh, you know, teaching and learning professionals can pull resources uh, with other leaders and ensure that, you know, we're working in partnership and collaboration the same way. And I mean, I, I think in particular for teaching and learning uh, leaders that direct partnership with your academic deans and program chairs is so critical in achieving, you know, your goals for the institution. I just think that being very open and transparent about what those goals are um, and sharing even with folks at the institution that you don't think might have an interest in what the, the priorities are for, you know, a CEDL or teaching and learning kind of focused office. Um, I think you'd be surprised at other individuals that come. And I think what we've experienced, especially with the pandemic is, you know, on on campuses, we can't work in silos. And so those, um, those types of relationships and connections are so important right now. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing in, in conversation after conversation is one of the 
sort of silver linings, if there are any of the last few years, is that there have been new relationships established and new collaborations established and a kind of coming together of all of those folks that help deliver on the academic mission of an institution. And there, there's some rich, I think, and, and really important initiatives and priorities that have come out of putting people with maybe different perspectives on the same problem together in a room, in a room, in a Zoom room or in a Microsoft room and, and um, you know, exploring ways in which to move the needle um, in the right direction related to the mission of the institution. So always a pleasure to talk with you and hear about the exciting things that you're doing at University of Arizona Global Campus and, and um, the ideas and the research and the uh, best practices that you're taking out to other leaders across the country. Thanks so much for sharing. I know our audience is going to um, derive a lot of value from hearing from you today and um, from hearing not only about these practical sorts of things, but how even in um, sort of change management and process, how you've navigated the important uh, role and the important uh, responsibility of the teaching and learning center and, and sort of interwoven that within and be, betwixt and between um, all the other uh, departments and, and groups that are helping to uh, helping to serve faculty and students across the campus. So always inspiring to hear from you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Keep keep sharing what you're learning, and and uh, we'll all uh, we'll all grow and learn as uh, as we work together and as we collaborate. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kathy. Always a pleasure. Yep. Take care. Thank you. Okay. I hope you all enjoyed this time together as much as, as I have. You can find uh, the APL mini pod and subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Amazon music, and iHeartRadio. You can also visit aplnexted.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to today's guest and thank you to you, our listeners. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. We hope the APL next ed mini pod is a helpful resource to you and your teams. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. The APL NextEd Minipod is brought to you by APL NextEd, the leading academic operations platform helping academic teams connect and collaborate in one place. To learn more about how APL NextEd is helping schools streamline academic operations, visit aplnexted.com. <laughs>